You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Heard is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Heard through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Heard Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Heard Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Heard. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight I'm joined by Vato. Hey, hey. Nick. Hello. Jason. I'm here. Woo! <laughs> and uh, Michigan Farm Bureau Board Director and full-time farmer, Travis Faley. How you doing, guys? Great, Travis. How are you? Good, thanks. All right. Nick? Yes. You have so an award sick. show this weekend. <laughs> I'm trying not to like die before it either. Uh, yeah, the Golden Jigger Awards. Yes. So we are trying to recognize all the great work that bartenders, brands, and restaurants have done in the region. So we're going to award um, 14 different awards in various categories, and it should be a lot of fun. Now, when you say region, you mean Metro Detroit with or the, the whole ex- state? With the exception of a couple awards. Okay. So we have the uh, best distillery, okay. which is uh, all of Michigan. We have the best Michigan brand launch, which is all Michigan, and then we have the best international or national launch. So it's the only three that aren't regional to Metro Detroit. Okay, and you guys have been do you, or you have been doing a, a there's a professional vote, like a industry vote, yep, and a public vote, correct? Yep. Okay, so we we got a panel of media and industry leaders. We got uh, the public to vote, and then I'm going to vote. So it's a third, a third, a third. And I haven't looked at any of the voting yet. You get a third of the say? Yeah. Wow. It's the Nick Drinks <laughs> Golden Jigger Awards. <laughs> well, so do you have, for personal, you don't, have to, you don't have to give specifics, but do you have criteria that you're going after, like notes? and? So I that? made a form for myself. Okay. I mean, other I, people can kind of vote. They're conscious. Right. What I did is I made a little blurb of um, like what I was looking for. Uh-huh. But again, they want to vote for their friend, they can vote for their friend or for themselves. Now, so it's not blind. Mm-hmm. What I didn't find myself on that, so I couldn't vote for myself. Now I'm thinking <laughs> you're that, like a media guy, though. That I shouldn't. Oh, wow. <laughs> thanks, man. Wow, that's cool. I I was gonna do a media like a media run for like the best. Uh, I wouldn't want to be on that list. <laughs> well, no, for like um, best podcast or brand or thing like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I didn't. I was happy to be a part of uh, the Sugar House as part of the whiskey program. Yep, so. Sugar House has a, a good representation on there. Uh, I mean, Detroit Optimists have a great representation on there, so they do good work. So, yeah. Uh, is the event going to be streamed live? It'll be streamed live at, it'll start at six with live music. I haven't decided if the live music's going to be streamed, but at seven is the awards and that'll be streamed Okay, on Nick Drink's Facebook channel. Uh-huh. And then it'll be, uh, rebroadcast on CMN TV on Monday with my normal TV show time. But the full, but the full show, like all two hours or it's going to be a two hour uh, show, right? Yeah. We haven't decided if it's going to be broken up or not yet. Okay. So. And this is all coming from the Willis show bar. Correct. Yeah. Yep. All right. Tickets are still on sale. There's like 15 tickets left. Last I looked. Oh, I got to buy one. Yeah. You got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joe's being drugged to be a cameraman as well. So. Yes. You don't have to buy a ticket. The, the solo, the only cameraman, yeah? Uh, yes. The only okay. cameraman right now. Yep. No, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> You'll be operating three cameras all by yourself. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I've done more difficult things. There you go. <laughs> All right. So I also want to talk about, I don't know if you guys caught this article, but there was an article that uh, Vato posted in our little private Facebook group about uh, bad tippers. Yeah. Did you guys read this the article? No. no. Okay. No. So, um, and that's okay because I can kind of summarize what, what, what the article stated. So the article stated that millennials are bad tippers because obviously millennials are terrible at everything, but only because they have the lowest income right now and that they don't have the money to tip. Right. But there are people that exist that tip poorly because they, they don't just, believe in it. They don't like yeah, tipping. They, they referenced uh, reservoir dogs and it was like, yeah, I don't believe in tipping and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, the server should make Look more what money. To them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the server. So I'm reading the article and I, I am nearly always 20% or higher tipper. 
no matter what. I don't care if it's whatever you know I'm getting. It's going to go high because I'm looking out for the server. Then I'm reading the article and I'm like, you know, I start thinking about some of the places like Danny Meyer places and, and whatnot where they get rid of tipping and start paying a fair wage. And maybe that's the right way to go. Well, let's let's back into that because is this national? Tell me if this is national or just Michigan. I mean, I'm sure most states have it where there's a lower wage for industry professionals. It's if national. You, that's national. Okay. So basically, but you're but, counting on tips for your normal pay. Because, and in theory. Because you're opted out of, well, first of all, no one can live on minimum wage. The way well, that's right a whole now. other debate. But, but just saying you're you're supposed to get at least up to the minimum wage. No. So, so no, you're so exempt, the way, you're, you're so exempt the, from minimum wage for being a server. You're exempt from minimum wage. A, 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 a proprietor can pay you considerably less than minimum wage. Okay, the way I understood it is you had to be, you were supposed to get tipped up to minimum wage. Yep. And if you w- didn't get that, your boss has to cover it. Exactly. That's exactly the law. B- right. But, yeah. okay. Yeah, but you can make, you know, a couple bucks, you know, an hour versus. Yeah, you make less than that. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. yeah I, I still have a paycheck from my bar that was like $5.25. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the tip, the right. tip minimum. Tip minimum wage right now is somewhere in the vicinity of between three and four dollars. I think it might it might be a little south three. Um, so yeah, the the it's up to the owner of the business to bump you up to minimum wage if you don't make that amount in tips. And right? that always happens, right? You make the at least minimum wage in tips. No, that the boss oh. always bumps you up. I think it always happens that you make min- at least minimum wage in tips for the most part. Um, I think that there are ways. I think that it's not automatic though i think it depends on your payroll process i mean i've read uh that stories of people that that has not been the case oh okay i believe that it's the law but also that if people don't necessarily follow the law that they are taking the chance that they'll also get somebody's gonna notice right you know and and you get bamboozled too when i I was a server back in college uh i remember we had a it was a high-end or high-end restaurant that uh, mandated that when you um, cashed out at the end of the night that you had to declare eleven percent. Yeah. I know that at Sugar House we came, they came back around and like there was an instance if underreporting where, but again I thought that was the pay I think it was the payroll processing that caught that and went back and assigned those. You know, or it had to be made up somehow. I, can, I don't want to say too much more because that's now I'm kind of thinking back. But yeah, I know that the payroll processing caught it. And I think they went around, went back and fixed it, or we had to come up with it somehow. But I'm not sure that I've heard other stories. So that, that's why I tip because yeah. it's their pay, right? And, and so there, right. there was a uh, we voted in November on a, on a law that uh, minimum wage law, and in no, this, no, we we signed petitions. Prior to that, for a minimum wage, the, the legislature took it up. Oh, right. And, and then they, they, they put scaled, it through. And then they scaled and they back. they scaled back this lame duck. Today. And it, it'll get to the governor's desk probably tonight Okay, or and they scaled back, back the um, the increase on the min- tip minimum wage, and they scaled back something else. On every, to, on, on all of it, yeah. Sick time. Yeah. 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 Um, but, you, but you're right. We, we, vote, we were voting to ha- get up to you know that $15 mark. Right. We weren't voting. We signed petitions. To get it onto the ballot, that's the legislature intervened and took it up, uh, which kept it off the ballot. Right, and then that's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I was confused about that, but that's yeah, that's that's right. And now now it's being scaled back. Um, a lot of it has to do with the Michigan Restaurant Association being a pretty big lobbyer right. lobbyist for the keeping the tip minimum wage. Um, yeah, part of it. Um, and a big part of that is restaurants not being able to. Um, keep up with the increase that the already thin margins that they have and having to increase their prices to um, make up for the the wage increases now this is a this is a discussion that we should have late in 2019 um, for a whole episode or two sure um, we can't discuss it all now but there's a lot to be talked about in terms of tipping and in terms of if it um, how much of it falls on the owner's shoulders and how much falls on the quality of what's happening in the restaurant because I think a lot of restaurants especially higher end restaurants, you raise your prices 10, 15, 20%. Most people aren't going to notice. Yeah. And the prices around here are fairly low anyway. So especially compared to bigger markets. We, 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 we can yeah. still talk about tipping and we can talk about cow tipping. We have some farmer. I want to probably some farmer jokes. <laughs> but then what happens when you add that on there and then the, what if the experience isn't worth it? But that, that shouldn't be the point though. Like if, if that's what we're going to be judging on, then it should be above and beyond. 
Yeah, it's and food for thought. And then no, also, I get it. Yeah. and one of the other arguments is that the the servers will not make up. So a lot of them make over fifteen dollars an hour. Well, the, the, I mean, my response to that is, we'll have have a gratuity line on the bill anyway. A lot of people make more than fifteen dollars an hour, right? Yeah. So, so it's like if someone, if you are above and beyond, mm-hmm. and you're you know you're getting your living wage, and someone wants to tip you, great, yep. because that doesn't that does not. Um, negate the 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 dynamic that is occurring at a restaurant. Right. The, the, whatever the person gets paid, that's being the server. It does not matter how much they're getting paid. It depends on how, what your interaction with them is, and your interaction with the space, and all of that, and the food, and right. everything that goes into it. Then it's a full experience. But right? then the question goes into shared tips, right? The back of the house doesn't get anything. Well, but they get paid minimum wage. They yeah. get paid right. So. But, and pooling tips is a whole nother issue. Right. I mean, yeah. again, this is like rabbit hole, rabbit hole, rabbit <laughs> hole. And it's a really cool rabbit hole to go down, but we just can't because we have Travis here and Travis isn't here to talk about tipping. Well, maybe cow, cow tipping, tipping, but we're, um, did millennials so, kill cow tipping? <laughs> <laughs> so Travis, you're a third generation cash crop farmer from but, Emmett. Uh, you run the farm with your father. That is correct. Okay. And uh, you serve on the board of directors of Michigan Farm Bureau, and you represent the five counties in the thumb of Michigan. What are those five counties? So it starts at the tip of the thumb, Macomb County, and then we work our way south. So I have Tuscola, um, Lapeer, St. Clair, and uh, Sanilac. Okay. So what what does that mean when you're on the board of directors of Michigan Farm Bureau? What does that mean? So I twofold. Uh, the first thing is, is I'm supposed to be that arm or that liaison between home office and Lansing and the members of the thumb of Michigan, talking to them and finding out what's important, what's affecting their farm. Um, and the thumb, let's face it, dairy, sugar beets, cash crop are the big components. And so if something legislatively is coming up, I try to talk to my members, find out what's going on, and then be their voice with their local members, their state legislators, and their national legislators too. So Michigan is, um, in terms of uh, agricultural diversity and um, and farming in general, is near the top of the in the country. We're the second most diversified state, second to California. Second to California. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we're much smaller than California, obviously. Um, so, what what does that mean in terms of you said sugar beets and dairy? What else do we grow in Michigan that's like fairly widely known? So the biggest, the biggest, most common things that um, you can probably think of is what you guys are going to be passing around here is cherries is a big uh, component, especially on the west side. Cherries, apples, peaches, and pears are huge on the west side of the state. And then the other key crops that you and I would be commonly aware of, corn, soybeans, wheat. Um, there's a lot of uh, pine trees um, and that kind of industry. There's a lot of uh, flowers that would are grown, especially here in southeast Michigan. Would pine trees be softwood? Um, so the biggest industry in pine trees is actually Christmas tree farming. Oh, interesting. Um, now okay. there's a lot of forestry up in the, in the, uh, UP. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be telling you a lie if I knew a lot about that sure. industry. Um, but you name it, it's grown here. And, uh, basically, um, on some scale, we, uh, the bee industry is actually starting to pick up a little bit too yeah. in the state of Michigan. Yep. We had Brian Peterson roost on here from bees in the D yep. a couple weeks ago. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that's, he was a big proponent of that. Obviously that's what he does. Yeah. Setting yep. up, uh beekeeping stations and all over the area. And actually some of the uh, farms are actually bringing them in. So for example, dry beans uh, during flowering, though actually some of the bigger dairy farms or dairy farms, some of the bigger farms in the thumb will actually bring the beehives in and set them in different locations around their farms um, to helping with pollination and thus maybe getting a better yield from their crop. You mentioned, you mentioned dairy. Does um, the Farm Bureau interact with the Dairy Council? Is the Dairy Council part of the farm? Is it, I mean, is it- so there are different organizations. So the biggest two dairy uh, organizations in the state would be MMPA, Michigan Milk Producers Association, and then DFA, Dairy Farmers of America. Those are the two big uh, dairy industries, and they are separate, but there's a lot of interaction between leadership of both of those boards um, when it comes to policy, um, especially right now the dairy industry is financially struggling. They are bleeding red. Um, there's overproduction and prices are down. Uh, so anything we can do to support that industry, those uh, three components are always working together to find that out and find new markets. Is part of that consumption? Part of that's consumption. Uh, part of that is just um, the American farmer is great at one thing, and that is making it and making it at a low price. Um, so there is a lot of production in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually part of the new, I'm going to get the, I got to think of the acronym right now. They're not no longer NAFTA, the USMC. Oh, the new new one. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, USM, um, yeah. Um, the Canadian market was a big expansion for us too. Now it wasn't a whole lot, but part of that, we did get a bigger footprint, um, into the Canadian market. The Canadians have their, um, our back, their quota system, if you will. Hmm. And so they've been really reluctant to let any other countries, uh, 
product come in and this opened that up a little bit. I don't know it's a lot, but it's a step in the right direction for the American dairy farmer. So this is just just dairy though with Canada or is that what does that mean in terms of uh, their quota system is it everything So their their quota system is more or less in regards to uh, their dairy industry Okay yes so okay. they don't cannibalize their own basically that, that that is correct and they they also limit the growth within the uh, dairy farmers growth potentially even on there here in the United States mm-hmm. right if I want to add another 1000 cows if the bank will give me the money we add the other 1000 mm-hmm. cows over there it's not quite that simple so we actually had to deal with that at the cable channels when because we had cable in Canada. And so you had to have 50%, 51% of the content had to come from Canadian sources. Canadian, like, um, talent. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hence why so many people on air were from Canada because it was easy. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like newer crops like uh, hops and, and now a, a marijuana, um, are those things that the Farm Bureau handles too? Or like that you guys know a lot about. Um. So I, I'm going to tackle them in two separate ways. Yep. So the hops part, um, there's a little bit more talk about that. Actually, there was a, a, f- a person that I was aware of from Michigan Farm Bureau who worked there who's actually started his own hop farm. Um, I don't know a lot about that industry. I just know that it takes a long time, right? I mean, corn or soybeans, I can plant it in April or May, and I have a crop to harvest by October, September, November timeframe of the calendar. Hops, I think it's a two to three to four year process before you even start mm-hmm. harvesting. Um I know that there's been some policies that have been set so that should something legislatively come up, we have a position to help that industry. Um, marijuana is kind of a trickier situation within the um, Michigan Farm Bureau world. Uh, we recognize that it's going to be legalized in, in the state, whether you're for or against that. We'd have that debate on a totally another topic. Right. But the within in simplifying it, um, I don't know that our members are ready to embrace um, that industry yet. Um, and not because of that, um, any thoughts with that. It's just the unknowns that come with that well, industry. And the federal too. Right, right. And that, but it's the unknowns of that come with that industry. And what does that potentially do um, to us, um, insurance costs mm-hmm. and things like that? Because we can't grow tobacco in Michigan? Uh, there was a gentleman one time, I remember reading an article, he was looking at growing it. But basically, yeah. no, um, our weather patterns just aren't right. We don't get hot enough, long enough. Um, for it to dry and cure correctly. Okay. It, well, I shouldn't say cure. Dry in the fields correctly so they can take it to the sheds mm-hmm. and the drying barns. Does the you, we you and I have talked about this before? What mm-hmm. the, what's the percentage of organic farms versus conventional farms that the Farm Bureau represents? Oh, that's a good question. I so it is a very small amount uh, of members that would be within the the active membership, if you will. Um, and when I say that, right? I mean you can be a Farm Bureau member. And and you pay your dues every year. Doesn't mean that you're necessarily active, that you're participating in policy development, that you're participating in some kind of um, committee or just being a vocal voice for at a local level. It's a small amount. Um, what I'm what I would tell you in my experience is those folks that are active are very good at what they do. Um, they understand it and they grow crops just as well as I, the conventional farmer. And and you and you said you've said to me and we have a history. Um, through a fellowship that we're with at MPLP with Michigan State, uh, we've talked about this and several times that there are conventional farmers or there are non-organic farmers that have organic um, ways of farming, but they don't meet the standard of organics because why? So I, I, the simple way I would explain it is let's put, let's put the farming into three different boxes, if you will. So there's the conventional farmer that you and I have talked about before, which I am, right? I, I use the typical chemistries, the fertilizers, and all the seed treatments and, and the GMOs of the seed, if you will. Then there's what we would call the, the more what they want to call themselves um, um, natural farmers or whatever you want to call it. So they follow all the organic practices, but they're not certified organic. And then you have your organic farmers. And what an organic farmer is when they say that they're something that is certified organic is that there's a product, a protocol or a process they have to go through. So everything has to be chased and checked. They have to do background. So for example, in a field, it can't have any conventional chemistry or fertilizer used on it in the last three years. And then they get certified and there's three or four different organizations out there, um, that'll make it so that this group is certified organic. So Faley Farms would be certified organic. And then once a year, I have to go through all my paperwork. I have to be able to prove what I've done and I can trace it. The advantage is once I have that seal of approval, then I can sell something, whether it's on the open market or at a local farmer's market, I can sell it that I'm certified organic. There's a hefty cost involved in that too, isn't there? There's a big cost in that. And I, I, if my memory serves me right, I thought part of their 
a certification cost is a percentage of the revenues. Wow. But don't hold me. Don't hold me to that. Okay. But there was a tie to that. So it's obviously the bigger you get, right? Obviously, the more the cost is going to be with that. Um, You're also it, charging a premium too, though, for you your product. Are. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Mm. And um, so that's not that is not a state or federal government agency. That's just a licensing body of some sort. So that so there's some requirements that the USDA sets. Okay. In their guidelines, but there's no organic. Um, arm of the government, okay. if you will. You just um, meet those requirements and then those other organizations, which are typically from Japan and Europe, is mm. where those other organizations that you're getting your certification are from. So I think it was Michael Poland and Omnivore's Dilemma went through the whole process of conventional versus organic versus local. And I think it came down into some respect that local is just as good as organic and maybe even preferable, especially, I mean, if you're buying within 5 to 10 miles or 20 even a hundred miles, um, you're getting you're getting a great quality product as fresh as can, can be. That's better than saying buy say buy organic uh, from Peru or something like that. Yeah. So Eric and I've had this uh, talk before, and that is that I, I there's nothing wrong with buying local. You should buy local all the time. It, it is a it's a fresh product, right? No different than if you grow it in your garden. I mean that that's perfect. Um, just we in the United States. Are, are spoiled and fortunate to have food as a resource at the drop of our fingers in a moment's notice. We spend the least amount of our percentage of income anywhere in the world. We spend less than 10% of our income on food. Um, there are some other well-developed countries that spend as high as 50%. That's my household. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like all of us eat quite a bit. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I think I probably spend over 100% of our income on food. <laughs> um, so, no, I never at any point in time would I be opposed to anybody buying locally, whether you want to just buy it at a typical you know, roadside stand that you just mom and pa have, or if you go want to do an organic or you want to do a local farmer's market, Eastern market. I think those are great. There's nothing wrong with those. What's great about our, our industry and great about our economy in the state of Michigan, it is big enough for all of us to live together. And we all have a niche that we can fill to help take care of the food needs of those in Michigan and the United States. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a shout out. I did a, um, a CSA this past summer nice. and fall into winter. Ex- explain for, what that is. Probably most people know what it is. But. Um, I don't even know what CSA stands for. What does CSA stand for? <laughs> uh, I should know that. But, it, but it's from, it's from Tollgate, Far- Tollgate Farms. Um, and so, uh, Someone would go pick it up every week, and we, we would. Um, there was probably about I don't know, maybe twenty of us that, that were involved. And um, from one box, you cheapskate. What? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, multiple boxes or half share, full share, half share, that type of thing. Um, it went from I want to say May through the week of Thanksgiving. Um, and, and I, I mean, I still have squash and potatoes and onions, and, and the, the the produce stays fresh for a lot longer. Um, I, I would have salad greens in my fridge for two or three weeks. Um, community supported agriculture, CSA. Perfect. Um, and, um, it was some of the best produce I've ever had. Um, and, and I would go to farmer's markets all the time, you know, even better than that. There's, I have far- friends that actually do that. That is how, that's a big part of their farm income, right? So they have, they do do farmer's markets, but they offer that CSA. And what's nice about the CSA is that it allows you to to organize or buy specific to what you want. So if maybe part of your package is that you want just tomatoes and green peppers, but you don't want any onions, or maybe you want green peppers and onions, but no tomatoes, you can specify your order. And then like you had mentioned, you come pick it up once a week. Um, and there's different cost levels too. Um, how specific you want that to be. You know, do you want greens in it? Don't you want greens in it? Um, that, that once again, that's a nice local, um, marketing thing that allows you to make that contact with that farmer too. And so you get to know who that farmer is. You get the idea of where your food comes from. And ultimately when we understand where our food comes from, we feel safer mm-hmm. with it and we have a better understanding of that. I would think that I would, I believe that if, um, I asked Vado after our class, most of those folks in there, I was the only person from basically rural America from ag. And I think after that class, uh, we have a better understanding of where f- their food comes from, and there's a safety with that, right? And that takes com- some of that edge off, understanding where that comes from. Um, the great thing about the class, too, every every month he brought something to the class from a farm, whether it was corn or asparagus or it even brought sugar, Michigan, Michigan-made mm-hmm. sugar. Yes. Yep. And from, from Pioneer. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yep. yep, It's a farmer co-op. The food, yep. All the farmers own it. So the other na- nice thing about CSA, and you talk about being spoiled, is the CSA is going to be seasonal. Correct. And so, you know, we're just like, oh, yeah, let's have, you know, this uh, great piece of broccoli in, you know, January. And it's not 
being, unless it's grown in a greenhouse. Or blueberries. You know, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. God, blueberries. Berries are the worst. Right. I mean, so this gets you in that cycle of cooking seasonally, which a, you know a bunch of people talk about is you need to do it. I tried right. to switch to frozen blueberries um, because it keeps all the nutrients in the blueberry, but then the thaw out process, which is horrible, and I just I don't know. I'd, is it your kids eating the berries? Because aren't kids kind of like berry crazy? Uh, well, blueberries. I eat blueberries. We all eat blueberries in our household. He the kid does eat every berry that you can think of. Yeah. Blackberries, you name it. But I, I tried. To go that route because I know that the blueberries we're getting is they're getting picked early so that way they can get shipped, you know, so that way it looks, you know, appropriate for, by the time they're we get They're little sour balls of goo. Yeah. Uh, the bananas are the best example of that, right? They have to pick them green so that by the time they get shipped into the, the shelf at the local Meyer or Kroger's, they're mm-hmm. the yellow color that you want. I mean, that, that happens in all those industries. Are we trying to, as you talked about the broccoli, right? Well, it has to come out of South America, Mexico mm-hmm. area. So by the time it has to be shipped up here there's a there's a time frame that they're trying to guess that for and, and ultimately gets back to that freshness factor yep. of what you talked about so yeah. can i ask you, so the the farm bureau then do they take on more responsibilities for education marketing some of those ideas or is it really the focus is really on legislative and policy development so the policy and legislative is a big component of that but reaching out and educating is a huge arm so within michigan farm bureau we have um, a group called the Promotion and Education Committee. Um, and what that does is it reaches out to um, not only members to help educate them, because let's face it, our industry is always changing and, and new things, um, but it also reaches out to those folks that are removed from the farm. The average person in Michigan now is two generations removed from a farm. And so to have that contact uh, with them. So Michigan Farm Bureau last year through donations uh, from the communities, through industry, uh, has now what they call an ag science uh, trailer. Hmm. And what they do is they take it around to local schools. Uh, it opens up and inside of it, there's a bunch of iPads and things like that. And so they're able to bring fourth graders on board and they do a science experiment of some sort relating to ag. Um, it has become so pop- popular across the United States or across the state of Michigan, I'm sorry, um, that we now are building our second trailer. And in conjunction, Ford has donated two trucks to be hooked onto that to yes. move it around. And ultimately, that idea originated out of Kentucky. Um, but the idea is to get kids to understand where their food comes from. Because uh, let's face it, they might not be millennials, but they are going to buy and need to consume food at some point in time. And then we also do uh, at the county levels, they do a, th- a project called Project Red Rural Education Day. And in St. Clair County, my home county, uh, they do that and they have uh, 600 kids come in from different school districts. And those kids get an opportunity to understand what is corn, what is sugar beets. Um, they actually get to touch a dairy cow. They actually get to plant a flower. Um, so to get back to what you originally asked, yeah, we're always trying to educate, um, on all kinds of levels and all kinds of things. Do you, do you have any involvement at state fair? We, so we used to be really involved when I was, uh, down here in the state of Detroit, there was the miracle of life tent. Okay. Um, I can yeah, tell you yeah. some really yeah. interesting stories about things, uh, that had happened there. Now, unfortunately that state, that part of the state fair is gone. Now there's one in the UP that uh, Michigan Farm Bureau does some things with. I have not attended that just because of logistics. But Isn't um, that the Novi Half-Ass State Fair too? Or? That's the State Fair. Is it the uh, Novi Show Place? Yeah. But it used to be on... Uh, yeah, like you know, at the State, State Fairgrounds. Fairgrounds. Right. Yeah. 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 Woodward <laughs> Seven and a Half. Crazy, I know. <laughs> right. Um, so they still do I saw some Alice of those. Cooper there. <laughs> <laughs> they do some of those outreach still at the, the UP okay. uh, State Fair portion. When you edu- when you provide this education, do you provide the education for people to say start gardening at home and, and growing their own crops at home? No, I. So the education factor would be if you wanted to do that, where would you go to get that information? Uh-huh. So would you work through your local MSU extension office? Um, and so if you're from St. Clair County, where would I get in contact with that person? Um, so maybe it's not so much the always the hands on, but it's to be that resource to who do I need to contact? What is the truth about this? What is not the truth about this? I want to start this new industry. Who? Where do I find a lawyer that understands ag? What is the truth about Right to Farm Act and it's all not, those kind of things? It's not PR like Visit Detroit or the – that's kind of I guess what I was thinking because earlier you would mentioned the like the milk overproduction or something about just, you know, is that something that the Farm Bureau would work with for like an ad campaign to change consumer behavior towards milk? to address that, for example, or, yeah, I guess I was thinking more of like in terms of PR, but, um, yeah. So. Well, you know, uh, talk about the, the, 
we're always learning ourselves. And so with the unfortunate situation, the Flint water crisis, one of the things that we found out is that milk is actually a good source to remove iron from the human mm. body. So Michigan Milk Producers Association, in conjunction with Myers and some other folks in the Flint area, did donate a bunch of milk because we have lots of extra milk, mm-hmm. uh, donated that as a resource to A, so they had a good drinking source, something healthy to drink, and also the, the net benefit of to the human body trying to pull some of that iron out of the body. So we're always learning even in the ag industry ourselves too. And then like the, the dairy farmers do have like other organizations that yeah. do PR. So like Milk Pep is an organization that like pushes milk education and does like the Got Milk commercials and things like that. Well, I think it's more than PR too. Get yeah, PR advertising. Well, uh, lobbyists I would call them in that point. Well, they're but, trying to get you to drink milk. It's not like they're doing a bad thing. Well, so, maybe 75% of, you know, Americans are lactose intolerant. So I like milk. How, how many percent? 75. Maybe 75%? even more. 75%? Maybe even more. I have not, I had not heard that number before. <laughs> 75% are lactose intolerant? Yeah. You just don't get tested for it. You don't know it. Uh, that, that could, we can, we can have a whole extra episode on, uh, why we shouldn't drink. That's like the, but. speaking of millennials and I saw earlier today, the thing that it was like, one study says millennials are eating out less. One study says <laughs> millennials are uh, grocery shopping less. And like, where are millennials actually getting their food from? Right. They're yeah. not. They can't be. Yeah. Right. They're not even Pho- eating. Photosynthesis. Right. Ramen. I'm telling you, it's yeah. ramen noodles, man. They're all farming. They're all having ramen noodles. Here, here's, a, here's a slightly tangent question. But what is up with state farm insurance, farm bureau insurance, farmers insurance? Like why? Every insurance out there, except for progressivists, has something to do with a farm. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea. So what but, I, but <laughs> is Farm Bureau? I, it just has a nice sound to it. Farm yes. Bureau, like you guys have an insurance. We do, and farm. I also serve on that board of directors. Also, okay. Yep. So, so how did how did you get from? I mean, you don't just insure farmers. You insure no all kinds. Of- so when Michigan Farm Bureau was uh, originally founded in 1919, it was over policies just to get roadways. Hundred year anniversary. We are going to celebrate Ooh, our hundred. Yep. Yep. Cool. We just actually had our annual. Uh, last week, okay. and it was our 99th one. So yes, that's the big centennial kickoff. Wow. So cool. when Michigan Farm Bureau was originally founded, it was just because there was no roads. And so we worked with the, gover- the governor to try to get roads established. And that's how Michigan Farm Bureau came to exist. Hmm. However, um, Good with, any, with any organization, <laughs> we got it. With, but with any organization, right, there's cost. And we had to find a way to um, fund, say, yeah. fund that mechanism. And so we started, that's when the insurance division hmm. uh, started. Um, so yes, that's the reason for, uh, the insurance division, if you will, is that, um, and we insure beyond just farmers, right? So there's two different divisions within, uh, that you're a regular member and associate member, uh, your membership dues are the same. Um, but yeah, so we auto, um, life insurance, yeah. your home business, and then we do commercial and some of that we do in house. Some of that we just personal workshops. Um, we, we would have some kind of insurance for that. Yes, that's correct. I need insurance. And so that's basically the funding mechanism that keeps, um, helps keep the animal going, if you will. So one of the more complicated, uh, things that have happened, that has happened with this current, uh, presidential administration is the the tariffs. Um, you mentioned soybeans. Soybeans are part of that Mm -hmm. tariff on, uh, so how has that, can you kind of explain how that's affected farmers and, what the kind of long game is that you see, um, not not even having to say if it's good or bad. Um, what do you think that these tariffs are going to do eventually? So um, your point is right on. I mean, it's it's a short term effect and a long term effect. Because in theory, it's helping you. And th- the idea is that we want to be get help okay. down the road. Um, so here's here's the first part. So um, just to keep it in a, in a simple format. Um, Prior to the talks of the tariffs being implemented, uh, a soybean, a bushel of soybeans would sell for about $9 a bushel is where the market was at. Um, once the tariffs came into effect, soybeans um, softened up to about seven fifty a bushel, a little less, a little more. But so there was about a $1.50 um, drop off in the market. So when they um, – as we worked through all that, there was part of that aid package that the administration gave out that there was a $12, $12 billion dollar. Um, aid package. Some of that went to soybeans, and the number they got attached to that was a dollar sixty a bushel um, to the soybeans to help offset that. Now, there's a caveat to that: we only get that on half of our bushels, so in essence, we're getting an eighty cent um, offset to that. Now, I will tell you that um, that'll help our bottom line; that helps us keep going. But the American farmer, the less government interaction we can have or involvement, I should say, in our farms, we just want to farm and do what's right. We would just want to sell in the free market. 
Now, we understand why we have to do that. So what the Canadians or the Canadians, what the Chinese are very good at is they can influence our uh, bean market in the snap of a finger because one in three soybeans grown in the United States somehow, some way end up in the Chinese market. Wow. So what, they'll, what they're notorious for doing is they will call and put an order in for soybeans. Oh. They'll call and order soybeans, right? And so their export numbers go way up. Man, the, the market surges and perfect. And then what they'll do is about a week to a month before mm-hmm. shipping, they'll call and say, yeah, we're going to cancel that. So now all of a sudden the market says, oh, crap, we got four some are for uh, boatloads of beans that we're not selling. And what does the market do? It tanks. So it, wait, wait, let's roll back a second. Who, who's calling who? Like, what, what does that mean? Like China's calling who? So the, the, the Chinese, so the buyer in China is calling the seller in the United States. The president so, so calls wh- Trump. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, this is interesting to me. So th- th- there's one a-, a buyer in China calling a buyer in the, like, is that, or is it like Do you know how the network? stock market works? Like, do you know how like markets work? No. So, it, so it's not. So it's not necessarily that the Chinese government's calling the American government. No, right. Yeah. It's just there's a China. There's a Chinese buyer yeah. that is buying American beans. It's, it's oversimplifying that. Yeah. Um. And so they call and they'll have that order and then they'll cancel the order. Now, when I say they cancel the order, they don't necessarily cancel with the U.S. government, but they whether it's maybe they're buying it from ADM, maybe they're buying it from the Andersons, whoever they're buying that from, they cancel that order. And there's always a report out there. What are exports? What's our inventory? What's our rolling stock looking like? And so those numbers fluctuate, right? So if ending stocks get too high, what does the market do? It gets a little soft because we've got a bunch of beans on the market. So what the uh, the Chinese will do is they'll have that order. They'll cancel it. All of a sudden, there's a panic. I shouldn't say a panic, mm-hmm. but there's a, a market reaction to, well, that's that many less soybeans are getting sold. So now the market softens and it'll drop down 25, 30 cents. And what do they do? They buy this, the four loads of soybeans back again, and they've just indirectly been able to drop their price point 25 cents mm-hmm. or 30 cents on four on four boatloads of beans which is a huge amount so that's part of trying to work through those um things but we understand that china or yeah china is a big um person for us i mean let's face it their their population is continually growing um the soybeans is a big staple of their diet um so it's, it's an important partner that we have in that in that industry if we want to continue the american farmer to do well in the bean industry so there's not like Contracts? I'm sure there's contracts. Okay. I'm sure there's some um, there's some cancellation fees, but ultimately it they turns can... out it's cheaper to okay yeah. Interesting. So, so then the tariffs though. So so the the tariff the idea behind the tariff. So we we put a tariff on China on all kinds of different things, right? And so the Chinese are are not fools. They looked at where our leadership is at. So for example, um, uh, Senator. Uh, Representative Pelosi, she's from California, and there's a bunch of Levi's there. What did they put a big tariff on? Levi's, um, bourbon, Brian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we had uh, McConnell yep. out of had bourbon. Um, they put a big tariff on Harley Davidsons out of Wisconsin, where Ryan is from. Um, and those were the big things. And then they just attacked their tariffs, and so we just started this tit for tat back and forth. Well, I'm going to put a dime on this. No, I'm going to put a dime on that. Now, the one good thing that came out is after the first of the year, those tariffs were all supposed to be rolled up to 25%. But now there's been a truce called, if you will, for the time being that the tariffs will stay at 10% um, until we work through this. And so they, I think it's a – I don't remember if it's a 60-day or 90-day reprieve that they've agreed to stay at the 10% tariffs at this point in time. So along the lines of this you know, global market and whatnot, can you talk a little bit about how you're impacted by – I guess NAFTA or whatever NAFTA is now and as it relates to labeling, we, you and I have talked about this, um, you know, Canadian labeling, for example. Um, some of the, the problems that farmers, American farmers have as it relates to that. And and also yeah. talk about country of origin labeling too because that should probably play into all yeah. this, right? Right. Excuse me. So uh, the one of the topic that you and I were talking about was the cherries. Yeah. So cherries, a big industry um, in the state. And we're drinking uh, – Segue into that, really. Yep. Quick, yeah. So we're having some cheeky cherry wine. Um, it's actually produced by Royal Farms up in Paw Paw, Michigan. Um, but they, it's all locally grown uh, cherries. I actually have two friends that are cherry processors. Um, so cherries is the the key one right now. So um, Hungary and Turkey are two big cherry producers, also, and we'll, we'll talk about Turkey just because they're the most relevant one lo- least recently. And that is the Turkish economy is very, very soft. Um, their dollar or value, I don't know what the name of their dollar is. Is um, a lira. Is that what it is? Is it really? I think so. Damn, Jason. I don't know. <laughs> um, I could be wrong. 
has next to no value, but the, their government heavily subsidizes their cherries. They can put it on the market cheaper. They can actually produce it, put it on the market, and bring it into the United States cheaper than we can even grow it here in the United States. Wow. So what's been happening is um, there's these labeling laws. And same thing, and you and I can have this talk about organic labeling right, laws right. too. Um, but what they can do is they'll sell them into Canada, for example. So Canada buys them and then they process them and then they package them, right? But they won't be they won't be packaged or sold as Turkish cherries because as, as long as it's a certain percentage of American cherries that are processed into it, they can be labeled as American cherries, even though it's not right. So that is what. So we've worked, been working very hard with the Canadians uh, on that to try to control that market. Um, so in essence, that that is the big part that's going out cherries. Um, so I'm shocked that the Canadian system would allow that because I feel like normally their labeling is stricter than ours. Definitely European Union is, right? Yes. Uh, let, let's face it. The Canadians are very smart uh, people. Mm-hmm. Um, is and, that like for export only then? In regards to? The cherries coming over here, like it's not something they'd sell locally? I guess I'm confused what you mean. So they're, label, they're labeling it to come to us, even Correct. though it's not like officially straightforward. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're labeling They're selling it into the United States. And so one of the things that the United States is looking at um, is are they dumping it onto our market mm-hmm. in essence? And so there's this, you know, can we um, can we work with the U.S. government to get um, some re- – I don't know what I want to even say here. To get some support because are they artificially dropping mm-hmm. the market because they're just literally dumping it on our market because they're getting Turkish government support. It's like they grow on trees. What's that? It's not like they grow on trees. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so that's a way around country of origin labeling then? That's one of the things. I mean there's some of those caveats to, to do that. But usually the country of origin labeling where that came um, to get a lot of attention was back when we had some of the beef scare mm-hmm. um, and some of those things. And so people want to know was their beef uh, American? Is it Mexican? Is it um, Japanese? Didn't, didn't recently though Trump took away some of the label, country of origin labeling? I think of, they uh, delayed some of it. Because I, I thought mean, you'd be the guy to ask. I don't know. I, I know there's been some changes that I don't. I don't follow that that area um, as close as probably I should. Um, crop insurance is more of something that I'm always trying to keep my mm-hmm. my pulse on because that's always a moving target, especially with the ag economy the way it is in the United States right now. That safety net's an important part of the American farmers hmm. um, toolbox. What about Farm Bur- Farm Bureau car insurance in Detroit? <laughs> that would be speaking of insurance what I keep my eye on you know so it's it, gas is down now, so. <laughs> it, it's actually really interesting um, as a insurance board we are all for that no. um, but if you want an even playing field though in regards to everyone else has to go lower too well what we just want is some reform in the industry okay period right um, and we I mean we could go down all those little mm-hmm. different rabbit holes but let, let's face it we have that unlimited liability right. insurance and we're the only state in the nation that has that mm-hmm. and what are those costs associated with that because it's not there's long-term liabilities that come with that so that if unfortunately one of you folks are hurt in that it's not only the the initial cost but what is the lifetime cost for you you know so how many are we going to have to buy you a van are we going to have to put in new railings in your house are we going to have to widen i mean all those things that go with it and those unknown costs in the long haul hurt all of us the other thing in the state of Michigan we don't have is we don't have a fraud bureau, right? So on average, the average person in the state of Michigan pays just under $200 a year in premiums just to help offset fraud. Ooh. We got Nick and he looks at people squirrely. <laughs> yeah, but I don't commit auto fraud. No, but you do look at the people squirrely like, oh, that fraud. What, 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 is, what does fraud mean? So fraud could be something as simple as somebody saying that um, they got hurt in an accident when there was really – no accident that ever occurred or two people have teamed up and says, okay, I'm going to hit you with my vehicle in essence. (laughs) And then we're going to go after, we're going to get the insurance. uh, Warning for this. We're not trying to give you ideas. (laughs) I've been hit by a car. I wouldn't recommend it. I was walking across the street, got hit by a car. I would not recommend that as any way to make a quick buck. So I believe in China and someone can look this up that if you injure someone and it's like a lifetime injury, the other, the person that did the injuring has to pay them. For like the rest of their life. So oftentimes they'll just try up. to kill them. No, 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 no. This is totally <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 They'll back up. They'll back up yeah. and try to kill them. Yep. So they just have yep. to pay. I've, I've read this article yeah. before. It's, a, it's a true statement. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 so uh, 
third generation farmer, mm-hmm. part, you know, huge advocate for the farm industry. What are the biggest challenges you see as Michigan farming coming up in the future? So at, at a Michigan level would be uh, a consistent labor force. Um, Across the board, whether you're in dairy, whether you're in the fruits, or even just uh, in the conventional farming market like myself. And what does that pay? Uh, is you, it typically minimum wage or is it more competitive? So, for example, on our farm, we're way over minimum wage. That's great. Yeah. Um, but it's a physical job mm-hmm. and the hours are daunting. Right. Um, I mean, there are very there are times of the year where I won't get more than three or four hours of sleep a night for two or three weeks. I mean, that's just the you industry. Can't, we you can't just go to Home Depot and pick up some people hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what the hell? Um, what man, I'm fat <laughs> <laughs> But it was interesting, the, the conversation you guys were having at the beginning about the minimum wage and all that. Um, so I would tell you that on average, that is well above minimum wage. Um the biggest problem that we face is the H-2A worker uh, mm-hmm. process. So first of all, we're limited on how many folks can come in through H-2A, right? What is and, H-2A? Uh, it's just a division of seasonal workers that come in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the, a, the H and the A stand for, oh, okay. but it's just a division of the, the, the season. Vi- the visa program. It's the visa program that comes in. We're only allowed so many people. Usually uh-huh. your H-2B is like the tech workers, right? H- and also days? H-2B would be for the folks that come in seasonally for working on Mackinac Island and things like that. But the catch just is that, is there has to be seasonal workforce, right? So a dairy farmer or a big cattle farm can't use H-2A workers because it's not seasonal. It's a full-time job. Um, And once again, so let's face it, the Michigan economy is doing well and there's a shortage of workers. And so even as a 20-year-old, I can go make 12 bucks an hour or 15 bucks an hour working at Home Depot or Menards or whatever that situation is. Or I can come work on Faley Farms for $15 an hour, but I'm going to be covered in sweat. I'm going to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week. But you're going to get jacked. <laughs> I mean, you're going to be ripped. And that's a lot, a lot of overtime too. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But the problem is, is so, but we're, you're out in the sun all day. Tan. It, yeah. Yeah. You're saying, it's all positioning. Burnt. <laughs> you're saying people are getting lazy. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that there's a lot of choices for folks to have when they want to work. And it is just we all want to take the path of least resistance. Sure. All right. So one thing that I, that seems to keep coming up more frequently is these outbreaks of E. coli or whatever. We just had the Romaine, Romaine scare, right? Yep. Yeah. What, is Mich- what are Michigan farmers doing to help prevent that locally? Well, so the, the thing that's interesting about that is the level of food safety audits. Mm-hmm. So I keep tying back because I have two friends that are big into cherries and apples and asparagus. I mean, they, they do a lot of processing. So I listen to those folks. So, for example, on a, in a cherry farm, when they shake the trees, because right when they pick the cherries, they actually shake the trees into this net thing and then they collect them. But they're all done in blocks and those blocks are assigned a number. Okay. And so when, when they're selling, they can sell um, cherries to Joe Smith farms and they say these cherries came out of block one, two, three, four. Mm. For tracking. For tracking okay. purposes, right? It's not quite as easy to always do that when it comes to um, some of the field crops. Um, so one of the benefits that we have in the United States compared to our uh, foreign country counterparts is that we do all that tracking. Um, that is one of the disadvantages though, right, to uh, sometimes buying at a farmer's market is that well, there's not those safety uh, mm. protocols in track, right? I mean, when you go buy sweet corn, the farmer doesn't tell you what row of what field that sweet corn came from. Um, there's some other interesting things um, I could tell you. So, for example, there's a story in California where there was a outbreak one time, and they were trying to figure out why the farmer was keeping having kept having problems on this. Well, what they found out is the government had bought a wetlands across the street from this guy's, uh, uh, I think it was a lettuce farm actually at that point in time, and they turned it into a a waterway for ducks. Well, what happens when the ducks and geese come into land or take off? They decide to relieve themselves mm-hmm. over top of this gentleman's um, lettuce field. Well, and th- isn't that a thing like dirty water? Isn't that kind of a debate that's happening right now too? I, I guess I haven't heard that. I know okay. that um, there was talk about what kind of um, – Like with irrigation? Yeah, what kind yeah. of um, manure management yeah. the things you can put over the top. But in my experiences, um, they're, if they're doing anything, they're just doing center pivot – over the top of those, okay. which are just going to be coming through a, a well source. Hmm. You got to wash your fruits and vegetables too, people. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. like, poop is used. <laughs> Still, and you know, some of it's from these other countries and stuff, you know, not having the, lab- the proper labeling, not having all the regulations. You don't know what you're getting from, uh, you know, 
you don't even know what you're getting from from Mexico or Canada. I but, mean, obviously. But the thing to remember is oh, these outbreaks that occur, like very rarely do they occur from a foreign country. Correct. But yeah. uh, and also on the same hand, there was an interesting. Uh, I'm going I'm to forget this fun fact I heard the other day. Um, and it was about the amount of people that are actually killed. I think it was something like more people are killed by vending machines in a year than in well, like falling on them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So my my point is is that there are there are ways that we're always getting hurt in the United States. It's just which ones get the most amount because you're publicity. shaking them sure. to get your candy out. <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah, right. Right. or to get free candy. Right. Well, man. So but my dog. point is is there are there safety issues that we're always trying to watch for? Yes. And, and anytime anybody unfortunately uh, gets sick or, or sick or pass away from that, that is very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But in the grand scheme of the 300 plus million people that are living in the United States, I think we do a very good job with food safety and providing a safe and healthy product for everybody across the state and the nation. Yeah. And anytime there's a food uh, illness outbreak, there it has to be reported. Mm-hmm. Correct. So uh, there's uh, like the, the, the six, like there's six um, bacteria types that once, once they're found, you have to report to your local news organization too, and then that's reported out. So safe, it's a public safety issue. Well, and then I, it becomes I, a meme for like the next week, right? <laughs> I, I subscribe to all the different uh, federal groups. You know, you can get you can get on a listserv, and they send you all the things that. Sorry, what? <laughs> wow. They send you all the things that are, have been recalled, allergens, this and that. I mean, the stuff that I get, it's not all in the news. Oh, but yeah. all these other. I mean, it's I get emails almost every day for something that's been. Oh, this has uh, been recalled because it's undeclared uh, soy or undeclared wheat or undeclared dairy or blah blah blah. Uh, it's it's crazy what's out there. I mean, oh yeah, as as a business that's trying to go into the USDA space, like one ta- one contaminated a lot of food can can destroy our business. That yeah. that's that's how serious it is. If we have one illness that occurs and, and like you know we have to recall all of our food. Mm. That, that's a huge risk that we take. Plus, yeah. then you I mean you also have a level of responsibility you feel for, you know, for the customer. I mean that comes first, obviously. But right. if you had Farm Bureau's insurance, though, or yeah, yeah. How, <laughs> how many how many farmers in Michigan do you guys got? Oh, geez, or on ballpark. Um, so farm actual regular members that we would have is forty thousand plus. Wow. Um, overall regular overall membership. I don't know that number right off the top of my head. I want to tell you it's two hundred and forty or two hundred and fifty thousand, but that I'm not certain on all that number. To be honest with you, so people want to learn more about Michigan farming. Where they go? Where can they go? So it, you can do you can reach out every county in the state of Michigan has a local county farm bureau. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can just do a basic Google search for your county farm bureau. And uh, there's resources there to get in contact with, or you can always just reach out to Michigan Farm Bureau um, in Lansing also. Um, mishfb.com. All right. Thanks, Travis. Thanks for being with us. Hey, perfect. Thanks for having me out. Thanks. Until next time, dine well, friends.